reminder, we are in the middle of a series called Mind the Gap. And it comes from Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, where God says to this prophet Ezekiel, he says, I looked everywhere in your land to find someone who would stand in the gap on behalf of these people. He says, I looked everywhere for someone who would build the wall and mine the gap so that I would not have to destroy this land, but I found no one. Now, as a quick reminder, he does not say, I looked for an institution. He doesn't say, I looked for a program. He doesn't say, I looked for a, um, a system. He doesn't say, I looked for a government. He doesn't even say, I looked for a church. He says, I looked for an individual who would do something on behalf of these people. But I found no one. So we've been on a journey for um, several weeks now talking about minding the gap and finding people in our lives to help fill the gaps that we have and also being the people to help fill the gaps in the lives of others. Today, we're going to talk about dealing with disappointment. And today, I know, um, today we're going to talk about a lady And this is the first and only person in this entire series that changes her own name. And her context for changing her name is incredibly sad, and it's incredibly disappointing, and it's heartbreaking. So before we get started, let's pray together. God, we thank you that you show up not just in this space but you show up in the space that's in our hearts. And we have these incredible gaps in our lives about who we want to be and who we actually are, the lives we want and the, and the lives we actually have. So thank you that you're a God that desires for those gaps to shrink. So give us ears and hearts to hear something from you this morning that will do just that, that will shrink the gaps between you and us. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. The lady that we're talking about today is a lady named Naomi. Very old school name, beautiful name. And as a matter of fact, throughout the book of Ruth, we only know her as Naomi. That's all we know her as. So let me give you a little bit of story about Naomi. Naomi is married to a man named Elimelech. So if you're looking for a boy's name, that's probably not high on your list. He will be the only Elimelech in his class, I promise. Naomi and Elimelech have two sons. Their sons are Malon and Kilion. Again, probably not high on your list for boys' names, but they would be the only ones in their class. Nobody would spell it or pronounce it correctly, but they'd be the only ones. So, they live in Bethlehem, Judea area, and there's a famine in the land. So, they move. They relocate to an area called Moab. Now, in Moab, the two sons find wives. And after, shortly after they relocate there, 
Elimelech dies. So they move to Moab because they can find food there. And Naomi's husband dies very, very shortly after the relocation. They, the two sons, find wives. Ruth and Orpah. After about ten years of living there, the two sons die. Are you kidding me? Really? Now, I understand right now in our context... There's probably things in your life that are disappointing to you. Probably nothing like this. So, after ten years of living in a foreign land, Naomi loses her husband and her two sons, and now it's her and her two daughter-in-laws, Naomi, Orpah, and Ruth. So now a famine has come to Moab, And Ruth hears that there's actually food back home. So she relocates again. At least now she's going home to where people know her and she knows people. So they relocate. Now, as they begin to go back home, Naomi says to her two daughter-in-laws, Look, um, I'm old. I'm not going to have any more sons for you to marry. You should not come back home with me. You need to stay where you are. Find husbands among your own people. Don't follow me. Don't come back. And this was a gut-wrenching, emotional conversation. And ultimately, Orpah, the one daughter-in-law, says, Man, you're right. So I'm going to go back home. One of the most profound conversations in the entire Scripture happens between Naomi and Ruth. And Naomi tries to convince Ruth, look, Orpah's going home. Just go with her. Please, just go. Stay home. Stay. Find another husband. Stay here. Stay here. Stay here. Ruth makes this fantastic statement. She says, where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. There is nothing that Naomi can do to convince Ruth to go back. And so Ruth stays with her side by side. And as they get back home we find our first verse. The people see Ruth, I'm sorry, they see Naomi back home. And they're excited to see her. And they they say, isn't this Naomi? And Naomi says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Let's stay right here and talk for just a minute, because that is heavy. Do you notice what captures her attention, at least early on in the story of her life. The Lord, because the Almighty, He did this to me. He made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune 
Now, do you think she's angry at God? Do you think she might be um, a little irrational? This is not a gender thing. <laughs> there, I am too close to too many women up front. I'm going to step back and get the podium in between us. I'll keep it like this. Do you think she's angry at God? Look at what she says. The Almighty did this to me. I went away full. I was happy. And look what God did to me. The Almighty has brought misfortune. He's afflicted me. He's brought misfortune on me. And she's angry. God, if you really love me, why did you let my child die? God, if you really love me, why did mom die? God, if you really love me, if you really were everything Will says you are, why did this bad thing happen to me? Why did my wife leave me? Why did my husband leave me? Why are my kids addicted? Why? God, if you really were everything you said you were, none of this bad stuff would have happened. Well, just let it sink in. It's not going to run off of you. It's not. It's going to stick to you, and that's okay. Don't call me Naomi. Now, why is she so adamant to not call her Naomi? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked, and here's why. Because Naomi means pleasant. I know. God loves irony, if you believe in irony. Right? My husband died. Both my sons died. I'm in a foreign land. I've got nothing my life is far from pleasant. There's nothing pleasant about my life. And Mara means bitter. Do you get the volume of what she's doing? She wants to be forever known as bitterness. If God really loved me, he wouldn't have let any of this bad stuff happen to me. This is what God did to me. So call me bitterness. You know any bitter people? Yeah, I know. That's funny to even ask, isn't it? Right. Yeah. Are you a bitter person? Nobody laughs at that. That no matter who we are as individuals, we are so tempted to let our circumstances define who we are. So she, Naomi, probably deep down was really, really pleasant. But her circumstances robbed her of being pleasant. Her circumstances made her bitter because she let them. And that's an easy thing to do. Because when life is hard... And when things aren't working out the way we think they should, when we have this huge gap in the life that we are living and the life that we think we deserve or want to have or should have, there's this big, giant gap. And how do we respond to that gap? How do we act when things aren't turning out the way we think they should? Oftentimes, our go-to is immediate bitterness. Here's why. 
Naomi most likely knew people who, whose husbands were still alive and whose sons were still alive. And they probably had grandsons and grandchildren. And they probably came to her friends' houses on Sunday after church and ate pie and played in the front yard. So she looked at what she didn't have and allowed it to make her bitter. She looked at what everybody else had and allowed it to make her bitter. And so imagine she has gone away and they survived for 10 years in a foreign land. And now they're coming home. And she is coming back empty. That's how she self-describes. You understand? That's the record she plays over and over again in her head. She plays the record over and over again in her head of what her mom and dad said about her. Of how her ex treated her about how her kids just abandoned her, about how she doesn't get treated right at her job, about how she works so hard, but the people who loathe get promoted. So she plays these records over and over and over and over in her head. So what records do you play over and over and over in your head? You've got the same broken record, the same negative message, the same hateful talk, the same mistreatment that you just continue to play and play and play and play and play. And then you wonder why you're bitter. You're constantly putting that stuff in. You're not replacing it with other things. You know, what I'm talking about to you right now is the main reason why many adults I know say no to God. Because 20 years ago, they had a friend who died. And if God was really everything you said he is, he wouldn't have let them die. If God was really everything you said he was, then why did my mother mother die so young? Why did my dad die so young? Why did I have so many miscarriages? Why Why is there pain in my life if God is everything you say he is? If he was everything you said he is, he wouldn't let anything bad happen to us. Have you ever suffered at the hand of anybody else? Has anybody ever been mean to you or mistreated you or just been rude or disrespectful? Go ahead and show me your hand. I know, I could have easily gone the other way, right? I could have easily said, if nobody's ever been mean to you, please stand up. We will be mean to you before you leave so you can feel like the rest of us. I promise. We will be hateful. Don't tell you we're Lutheran. Now... <laughs> I know. I can say that because I don't think there's any former. There might be some former Lutherans. But, you know, this church is full of former somethings, right? Who's the former Lutheran? Oh, so you are a mean person. Okay. See, it's very simple. Oh, and Marcia, see, two mean ladies. Notice that the mean people were both women? All God's men said amen. Now, listen. I know. So, listen. I don't even. Oh, come on. I know I need to get back on track. Don't look at me. Son of a gun. See, I don't have any of this stuff written down. I'll get right back to it. So, um, why God, why bad things happen? Because there's sin in the world. So in order for God 
to keep anything bad happening to you, he has to take away somebody's free will. He has to take away their free will to make a choice to be disrespectful to you or mean to you or steal from you or hurt you in any possible way. He has to take away free will. So, then, if I really don't want to suffer at all, God has to take away somebody's free will, which I'm good with. Just don't take away my free will. See, God's not in that business. So we all have free will. Good, bad, ugly. We have free will. So bad things are going to happen. People are going to disappoint us. There's going to be heartache in our lives. There's going to be pain in our lives. There's going to be suffering in our lives. Those things are going to happen. No, he's the kid. This is my son, just in case you didn't know. Who could have went and came around and tried to be quiet, not interrupt. Yes, I could have pretended he wasn't there, but we were almost holding the hand. We're going to have to bleak this from the book. So, Naomi says, look, don't call me pleasant. My life is not pleasant. Call me bitterness, because that's all I got. Now, you and I both know that's not true. All we know is this much of her story. Has she suffered loss? Yes, she absolutely has. Is that devastating loss? Absolutely. She is pressed down, but she is not destroyed. So what do we do when we're suffering loss? What do we do? How do we handle those things that come into our lives that have the potential to rename us bitterness? Just three things. Really, really simple three things. And I know they're simple to talk about, they're simple to preach about, they're simple to say. But you're going to get up from your chair today and go home. And then tomorrow you're going to go to work. And then all that stuff is still there. The things that have potential to hurt you have not disappeared. So let's just talk about three very simple things. And I promise you, I'm a simple guy. I can't make it complicated. So it's just about three things that we do when life is really, really hard. Are you ready? Good. So the first one, I need to focus on what I know. The second one, I need to focus on what God can do. And the third one, I need to focus on what I can do. Three simple things. It is not difficult. It really isn't. It just takes discipline on our part to not drown in those events that will cause us to be bitter to not let those things be the thing that we think about all the time. So that's why our very first one is I need to focus on what I know. I need to focus on what I know. Now, when we talk about focus on what we know, we're not talking about knowing how all this works out because we don't know that. We don't know that. We don't know that if we humble ourselves to the people who are making our lives difficult, if they will actually change their behavior. We don't know that. We'd like to know that. You know why we'd like to know? Because if they're going to change, we'll keep doing it. If they're not going to change, forget them. If my, if my changed attitude is not going to bring about change in other people, will I still am I still willing to change? I don't know. 
talking. So let's talk about what I know. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. This is Paul saying, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know. And he gives us three things to know. In order that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Number one, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Number two, and his incomparably great power for us to believe. That is a power like the working of his mighty strength. So three things. He says, this is what I want you to know. I want you to know that you have hope. I want you to know that you have hope, is what Paul says. The second thing, the riches of his glory in the hands of the saints. I want you to know that this world is as bad as it gets. That you have an inheritance that transcends this world. Do you get it? So as bad as it is right now, this world is as bad as it will be for you if you have faith in Christ as your Savior. And the third, man, God is powerful. God is big. God is strong. There is nothing God can't do. But the God that we serve is powerful. We need to know that. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 to 18. Paul again says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed every single day. For this is how he describes this pain. Now, before you read that, stop looking at it. Don't cheat on me. Look at me. When Paul says this statement, you need to know some things about Paul. He was dragged outside of multiple cities and stoned, intending to stone him to death, to kill him. He'd been beaten to the maximum extent that the Roman law would allow. Multiple times. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been snake bit. All kinds of bad stuff happened to Paul. And he says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not what on a scene on what is unseen. For the stuff we see is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Now imagine that that guy who just said that is standing in front of us and he takes his shirt off and he shows you his back. And he says, our light and momentary troubles. Doesn't feel light and momentary, does it? But this is the guy that suffered all those, all those things. And he says, so this is what I pay attention to. I fix my eyes on the stuff that I can't see. I fix my eyes on my eternal future. I fix my eyes on the things that will matter in eternity. Because all the pain, all the inconvenience, all the stuff that can cause me to be bitter, that's just temporary stuff. That's just temporary stuff. So we focus on the things we know. Next, we focus on what God can do. We focus on what God can do. Ephesians chapter 3, this is the same guy writing. He says, Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably above anything that we can ask or imagine. Now here's what I do at the Brighton Center. I'm going to do it with you right now. I want you to close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. Don't cheat. 
And I want you to just think of two things that you dream about. That you imagine that your life could be could be possible for you to have or to be in your life. Now, it could be about you. It could be about your family. It could be about anything. So what you're doing right now is you're dreaming. You're imagining. Okay, now open your eyes. Now also imagine that you're sitting in a room with about 15 to 20 adults, well, some teenagers, some going from teenagers to grandmothers in a recovery class whose lives have been train wrecked by all different kinds of things. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is working within us. So God just said through the Apostle Paul, the, the thing you dream about, God says, I can top that. The thing that you just imagined for your life, God says, I can do better than that. Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than anything we could ask or imagine. According to his power that has worked within us, to him be the glory in the church and Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. That's what God can do. So all the things that want to pull us down into that bitterness, into that fear, into that worry, into that anxiety, God says, whoa, whoa, hold on. Did you just, did you just read what I can do? Have we met? God says, look around. There are so many more reasons to believe that God is who he says he is than there are reasons to doubt that God can do anything to help us. None of us, none of us have to worry every single day that our minds are going to tell our hearts to beat. You go to sleep never worrying that your head is telling your lungs to breathe. None of us. None of us go to sleep at night going, is there enough oxygen in the world that's going to keep me alive overnight? Does anybody have that legitimate fear? I have psychologist friends that will talk to you if you need help. None of us do. There are so many reasons to believe in the goodness of God. So many reasons to turn to God and not turn away. That's what God can do. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul is talking about the suffering that he goes through that I kind of just mentioned. He says, that's why I'm suffering as I am. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I've, what I've entrusted to him for that day. I know that I can trust God with all of my life, is what he says. I have committed my life, I've committed my ministry, I've committed my time, I've committed my resources, I've committed, I've given God all this stuff, and now I can trust him with my life. You notice he doesn't say, I trust my religion. He doesn't say, I trust my intellect. He doesn't say, I trust anything else. He says, I trust God with everything, and I know that he is safe to be trusted. That's what God can do. So, the underlying question is, why do people still say no to God? Look, I understand saying no to religion. I get that 100%. Maybe you grew up in a church where you've got a lot of religion and got very little of the power and majesty of Jesus Christ. You've got 
got a lot of rules to follow. You've got a lot of lines to tow. You've got a lot of the stuff that you had to do to make God happy. But you've got very little of the fact that Jesus died on the cross to make God happy. To do the thing that we could not do for ourselves in paying for our sins. So I get it. I get why people say no to religion. Jesus said no to religion. If you want to read the Gospels and find out who Jesus was aggravated with the most, it's always religious people. It's not the sinners. It's not the hookers. It's not the beggars and the thieves and the Pharisees and the publicans. It's not the criminals. And Jesus is like, uh, you come with me. You religious people? No, you're all right. He did it all the time. He surrounded himself with the most broken, degenerate, train-wrecked people. And he said about that, look, people who think they're healthy don't need a doctor. I've come for the sick. And he's talking about spiritual sick. Because that's what God can do. So I need to be focusing, when I deal with those depressing, discouraging, disappointing, whatever D word fits most for you, a thing that will help me is not just focusing on what I know but also focusing on what God can do. He says, look, I know that I can trust God with everything I've given him. Now finally, what can I do? When those moments, the big D's, the depression, the discouragement, the disappointment, when all of those seem to be overwhelming, that's all my mind can stand, that's all I seems like that is at every turn. What can I do about that? 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 and 5. Paul, again, there's a reason why we're using so much of the stuff that the Apostle Paul says. One of the reasons is this. Paul started off as a guy named Saul. Saul hated people like us who followed what was then called the way. People that believed that Jesus was God and he died on the cross as God to pay for the sins of the world. Saul started off his life hating people like us. And his job was to go around and find people like us and either stone us to death or take us to jail. So on a road to Damascus, Jesus shows up in Paul's life. Um, This is long after Jesus has has died and is crucified and risen again. Jesus shows up and he he knocks um, Saul on his rear end and he says, um, now this is what are you doing? Why are you fighting against me? Saul immediately says, uh, Lord, sorry? Jesus says, why do you fight against what I'm trying to do in your life? Now imagine that Saul becomes Paul and he spends the last part of his life preaching the stuff that he used to persecute. Okay, that's a great warm and fuzzy story, right? Until Paul comes to the town where, as Saul, he went there and he had people murdered. And now he goes and he sees Emily. And just a few years ago, he had Emily's parents stoned to death. And now he has to look her in the face. So we read the words of Paul. 
He is almost single-handedly responsible for most of our theology. And while I'm saying that, you understand that the, the Shaft may be a great book and a great movie, but it's not a source of theology. I just want you to know, neither was the Passion of the Christ, neither was the Blind Side, neither, they're great stories, but they're not sources of theology. So, Paul says, the weapons we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, the weapons that we use have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That's what I can do. When the bitterness overwhelms me, when the discouragement overwhelms me, when the depression overwhelms me, I have to take my thoughts captive. I have to. Because if not, your head may be similar to mine. May God have mercy on us all. That my mind is constantly moving. It is constantly racing. It is, there is it's an overwhelming source of input all the time. And as I'm doing this, I'm thinking about four other things. Like literally right now, as I'm talking to you, there's all kinds of stuff running around in my head. And I need to take those things captive. That's what I can do. I can stop fighting the discouragement and the depression and the disappointment in my life with weapons of this world. And in those moments, what are the weapons of this world? Well, if I can make you feel bad, I can feel better. Anybody attempted to do that? Anybody ever been a teenager? Yes! Yes! So we will do all different kinds of things make ourselves feel better, and sometimes that's treating other people poorly. I know that's sad, and we think that adults don't do that, but we do. You work with people that probably do that. So what I can do is know that the, that the weapons that I have are spiritual weapons. And I need to take my thoughts Now, the last big section we're going to talk about is really dumbfounding, and it is spectacular. And it comes from the word, the, it comes from the second king of Israel. The Bible says that this guy is a man after God's own heart, and this is, comes from David. Now, listen to what he says. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer. Oh, Lord, my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. Now, let's stay right there. That is, don't call me pleasant anymore. Call me bitterness. And this is the guy that God says, out of all the people, this guy has a heart that looks the most like mine. Excuse me? Are you kidding? Really? This guy? Did you hear what he just said? 
So we get to the last few verses. My enemy will say I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But notice what he says. He finishes off like a rock star. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will even sing to the Lord. For he has been good to me. Did you hear the stuff that he said in verses like 1, 2, and 3, and 4? God, you forget me. You don't even look me in the face. My prayers never make it out of the room. You don't care about me at all. That's what he says. And then he finishes with that. Like he is split personalities. And again, I get it. He says, man, but God, all of that stuff, I trust in your unfailing love. See, we have a choice to make about what will capture our attention. And I get it. In the moments when life is really hard, and you have a flat tire during rush hour on the highway. And you go, really? And it's raining, and nobody is stopping, and you just canceled AAA. So there are no outs, right? There's no out. You don't have a spare. Your phone's dead. And, and, and you understand a lot of that's on you, because you didn't charge your phone, but God hates you. I know. Somewhere along the line, we have to kind of own some stuff. But all those things are easy for us to turn into bitterness and resentment and anger. David says, in the middle of all that, I will trust in your unfailing love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. Now let me tell you about Naomi. Because God says, I looked for somebody who would solve the problems, who would do something on behalf of these people, so I wouldn't have to destroy the land, and I found no one. Ezekiel chapter 42, verse 1. Naomi goes back home. She has Ruth with her. They have nothing. Nothing at all. So, <laughs> Naomi goes back to home because she knows that in the nation of Israel, they have a program in place to help people who are poor. And so, in, in your field, you have harvesters who go out. And the harvesters don't pick the field clean. They leave stuff there for the poor people to come behind and glean and have food to eat. So Naomi says to her daughter-in-law, Ruth, uh, listen, sugar, because she's from the South. She says, listen, sugar, here's what you got to do. So she said, go out to this field, and they'll leave stuff for you. Now, Naomi could have never manipulated the circumstances for what turned out, because she sends Ruth out to this field, and it turns out to be the field of this guy named Boaz. Again, I think that's a great name for a kid. He will be the only Boaz that he ever, ever knows. But son of a gun, Boaz. I mean, just rolls off your tongue, and it ends with Z. Right? It's just fun to say. Say it with me. Say it. Ready? Boaz. See? Listen to that. Rob Trump, that's a name for that boy. So, um, 
Boaz sees Ruth. And he says, well, hey, who's she? And he tells his workers, he said, hey, well, wherever she's working, protect her. Don't let anything bad happen to her. And make sure that you leave extra so that she can pick it up. See, God says, I'm not looking for an institution. I'm looking for somebody. And so God sends Ruth into the past of this guy named Boaz. So Boaz falls in love with Ruth. Ruth falls in love with Boaz. Naomi is still has in her inheritance a piece of land that she cannot afford. And so by Israelite law, the next person related to her passed away husband, Elimelech, can buy the land. Now, in buying the land, he also gets, I know this is going to sound bad, but he also gets Naomi. Right? So, um, she is attached to the land. So Boaz goes to the courthouse steps. And on the courthouse steps, the next guy in line who can buy the land that should be Naomi's is also going to get uh, is also going to get her and everything that goes with her. So that guy is called the kinsman redeemer. That's his title. That's also a reference to Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you why in a minute. On the courthouse steps, this guy shows up. And he says, hey, um, I can buy that land as the next in line, the next relative. I can buy that land. And Boaz is there. And he said, um, hey, buddy, do you know that when you buy that land, you also get her? And the guy's like, uh, I've already got one of her. <laughs> I already got one. Um, and he said, so I can't. That puts Boaz as the next guy in line. And he says, then I will buy it. And I will take um, into my household Naomi and also be able to marry Ruth. And so in their culture, in order to seal a deal, to sign a contract, they took their right shoe off. And as the contract was settled, they traded shoes. No, look at that. (laughs) So that's how Boaz becomes the kinsman redeemer for Ruth. Now, if you want to know why that's important, I'll tell you why. Because Ruth and Boaz become ancestors to a guy who just wrote a song we just read. And his name is David. And by being ancestors of David, they also became ancestors of Jesus Christ. Naomi says, don't call me. Because what you saw in the moment was how bad everything was. Now, if you jump to the end of the book of Ruth, Naomi's a rock star. She is, I mean, the the way her life has turned out is nothing like that first chapter. And God does something remarkable, and here's how. All through people. All through people. You are the person that will be standing in the gap for someone. Suck it up. Be that person. Stand in the gap. There will be people that you need to stand in the gap for you. Let them. Let them stand in the gap. Your pride will get you nothing. It will get you nothing. Pray. 
personally stand amazed at who you are. That you are intentional about showing up in our lives, standing in the gap for us through Jesus, our kinsman redeemer, who, who provided redemption for us when no one else could. Thank you for that truth. Father, we all deal with disappointments and discouragements and depressions in our lives. And they can be so overwhelming to us. Overwhelming so much that it, it changes our identity. So help us to do those things. Help us to focus on what we know. To focus on what you can do. And then to focus on what we can do.